This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 524, a conversation with Joe Casey. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman, and this is episode 524. It's a conversation with Joe Casey. I recently sat down with Joe to talk his time in comics. Uh, we talked about his time writing on Cable, uh, writing for the Avengers and the various different books, uh, writing for the X-Men, Superman, uh, talked his earlier career in comics. Uh, it was a really fun and enjoyable conversation. Uh, it was great to chat with Joe. Um, I mentioned it, I believe, in the podcast, but uh, the first version of Cable I ever really read was his. Um, in fact, uh, it was kind of midway through his run, he did a kind of a recap origin issue uh, and that was kind of got me up to speed on who cable really was i had seen him in some books but i'd never really read a cable book at that point and i uh, definitely hadn't read a, a regular basis and that was when i actually started uh reading cable for years um uh, on a regular basis, and it all started with Joe Casey. Um, I'm also a huge fan of his run on Superman. I also really absolutely adore his run on Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes. So it was really great to be able to sit down with Joe and talk his career in comics, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. Uh, you can always email us at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, like us on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also listen to us on Stitcher. Uh, upcoming episode, uh, so our next uh, non-reviews episode will be our uh, spotlight on... Uh, the Justice League film, which is coming out on the 17th of November, so that episode is probably going to go up on the 18th, um, and we have some great stuff coming up in the next few months. Uh, we have a conversation coming with Ed Brisson, a current writer of Iron Fist, amongst other projects. Uh, we're also going to have the one of the major gurus of the Marvel Collections Department, um, Corey Sotomayor, joining us. We're going to have uh, John Wright Thomas, otherwise known as Gormu, on the Marvel Masterworks Forum, joining us at some point once we get the scheduling down. Um, and also, we're going to have an episode looking at the Star Wars uh, The Last Jedi film. Uh, when that comes out in mid-December. Mid December. Uh, so we have a bunch of uh, good episodes coming up. So uh, thanks for joining us for this episode as I sit down with Joe, and we'll catch you next time. But uh, without further ado, here's the conversation with Joe Casey. Joe, welcome to the Comic Shadigans podcast. How are you doing this afternoon? Pretty good. How about you? I'm doing pretty well. As we speak, this is uh, the day of the uh, the Game 7 of the World Series, so part of me is wondering what's going to happen with that. <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, well, I live in L.A., so everyone's very interested out here. Absolutely. I'm almost surprised that you're doing the podcast with me right now and not watching the game. Well, you know, I have my priorities. You know. <laughs> well, that's very much appreciated. Yeah. So I want to go way back. Um, so first of all, I want to say that um, the first time I ever started picking up uh, cable on a regular basis. You were the writer of that book, so it's always been a, a very important book to me because, again, I had never really read the character, and your version of the character has always been the one that kind of stood out to me the most. Wow, thanks. Yeah, uh, appreciate so, that. So I, I just want to thank you because, I mean, the, I, I remember, I still remember the first issue I read, and it was you and Ladron, and it was just really enjoyable, and I remember going back and reading the rest of your run, and so uh, a couple of months ago, I realized that um, your entire run is being collected in these trade paperbacks, and I was like, man, I'd love to have Joe on the show to chat with him about his cable run. I don't even know if he'll want to talk about it, it was so long ago, but maybe, maybe he'll say yes. Well, as much as I can talk about it, I'll talk about it. I don't know how much I can remember, but I'll do the best that I can. I mean, it was a long time ago. It was almost 20 years now. Yeah. Is it crazy to think that it's been that long? Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, it's hysterical that Marvel is now collecting them. I don't know. I mean, I suppose the movie prompted it to some degree. There'll be a lot of cable material being reprinted between now and, I suppose, next February, I, I guess. No, I, whenever, whenever Deadpool 2 is coming out. I feel like it's the summer next year. There'll be a lot of cable yeah. product that 
For sure, yeah, they're going to be flooding, flooding with the pro- with your well. In this case, with your product, which is actually quite enjoyable and good. But I want to kind of go back to that era. First of all, look before we get to there. What was it about comics that you first became a fan of in the first place, and and what comics were were it that drew you in? Well, um, I think I've probably been reading comics for as long as I can remember. I don't remember ever not reading them or at least looking at them. Mm-hmm. And um, and I was I guess I started out as a Marvel kid. I, I suppose I don't know this for a fact, but probably uh, I'm of the generation that saw Spider Man for the first time on the Electric Company, which is a kids' reading program on PBS mm-hmm. public school, uh, public television, and uh, that's probably where I first saw the character and then I would see him in, in the drugstore and on the comic rack. And, you know, and I I probably made the connection there. I can't say for sure, but that, that's what makes sense to me in hindsight. Um, but again, it was so long ago. Uh, I don't remember not having comics around. So it's, it's, it's been that long. And I guess also from a young age, were you also a storyteller that you like telling stories? Uh, I told my fair share of lies when I was a kid, sure. Um, <laughs> but I think um, I, I was I, I was definitely that kid that was drawing stick figure comics. Just I don't know why. I mean, I mean in retrospect, I know why because I was just it was just something that you know you have an aptitude for something and you're drawn to it and you try to do it and um, it's like comics are like a language and you, you learn the language and if you learn them young if you learn that language young enough it really sticks I mean I, I couldn't learn a foreign language now if you put a gun to my head probably <laughs> um, but I just comics got into my head into my blood from you know four or five years old um, so yeah so long long time with comics now, how do you kind of start entering into the industry? Like, looking at your credits, it's fascinating some of the books you were working on kind of right out the gate or what it looks like right out of the gate. So I'm curious, what was your entry point into the actual comic book world as a professional? Well, I thought my path was going to be what a lot of my, a lot of the people I looked up to at the time, what their path was, was you do sort of no money, independent, black and white comics that are very personal, very artsy or whatever, and you, you prove yourself there, and maybe, if you're lucky, you work your way up to Marvel or DC, and and you start getting, you know, paying jobs. Um, and that's what I was working on at the time. And uh, I moved out to California, I lived in Los Angeles, and I met a lot of comic book writers and artists who were also... I mean, they were working professionals. And um, so I had a bit of a leg up. I wasn't just coming out of nowhere with my black and white comics. I had real professionals to show them to who would look at them and give me critiques and give me feedback and also uh, give me um, suggestions on where to take them to be published. But these were guys that were working for Marvel and DC. So in the case of... James Robinson, who I'd met and known for a couple of years at, at, at that point, 
and shown him my other work, my, my, my black and white comics I was working on. When he was going to step off the cable gig, uh, he just graciously, not only did he recommend me for the job, when no one at Marvel knew who the hell I was, he pretty much, under the auspices of us co-writing together, he basically just got me the gig. And then before we even wrote an issue together, he said, I'm, I'm, you're fine. I'm going to step off now. <laughs> um, and it was amazing that Marvel was like, okay. But, um, th- I mean, that's how it happened. It, you know, it seems impossible now, but I guess since then, that's a lot of, that's a, um, <laughs> a lot of writers have broken in that way, sort of on the, I guess on the coattails of other writers, you'll see writers co-writing for six issues or a year or whatever. And then, and then that, that new writer is able to go off on his own. Mm-hmm. I'd never heard of it before. And it certainly didn't happen a lot 20 years ago, but I'm extremely grateful to James for engineering that. And in hindsight, I'm grateful that he begged off right away mm. because I, I wasn't, I wasn't tagged with any sort of co-writer baggage. I, I you know, I was, I, I was able to jump in and, and, and be my own writer uh, straight away. Well, it's interesting, too, because, I mean, you're jumping in in the middle of an arc, too. It's not even like, oh, you know, he had some long-running storylines going. Like, it was the middle of a storyline. That's what's so interesting about it. And especially the, the way that, you know, he he left after issue 50, which was part three of, like, a six-part storyline. Who puts part three in issue 50? Like, there's so many things about that are very curious to me. Yeah, I, I think... Um you know, at that at that point, I mean, I remember if I recall, issue fifty was a double sized issue, so I think that's as as much of a acknowledgement as they were willing to do. I don't think, you know, issue twenty five, issue fifty, those those were not the milestones that they might be these days. But, I mean, <laughs> a lot of series don't even make it to twenty, let alone fifty. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that. Uh, I guess they didn't put that that much thought into it, as, as far as I could tell. And and I knew James, and I was hearing about the story before I jumped on him. I knew exactly what he was doing, where he was going. He filled me in on everything <clears throat> way in advance. So believe me, I wasn't certainly wasn't going to make any noise about it. I was just happy for the gig. For sure. Well, it's, and again, like again, as I said, he's starting a new storyline, but he also introduces like the Irene Merriweather character, who you did a lot with. So he kind of establishes brand new pieces, and again, you come in in the middle of the storyline with new characters, new ideas, and you're kind of you know bringing it down the field. I, obviously, I think you did a very good job with it, but it, looking back on it, knowing that it's part of a transition, and knowing how poorly those can sometimes go, it's fascinating to me. Well, I mean, you got to understand, I had no cable thing. I didn't really. I knew the character just in passing the comics where he was really popular and, and that era of Marvel comics in particular was sort of after I'd fallen off as a regular reader. I mean, I certainly knew what was going on. I knew who the character was, but I'd never read the series. I didn't really have any Jones for the character or his mythology, but I had a lot of respect for James. And so any elements that he introduced 
were the were the elements that I was going to hang on to like grim death because I felt those were legitimate, and it was really at the urging of, of Marvel that I had to bring in <clears throat> whatever that guy's name was, blacksmith, that little gnomey looking dude. Yep. They wanted him to, to come back, and I was just like, "Ugh, I have no idea." But I'd read, I James had given me all of the re- reference they'd given him because he'd never read the character either. So they sent him the whole run, which was, you know, 40 issues to that point. So when he was going to turn over the series, he gave me all those comics. I read them all, you know, tried to decipher them as best I could. And <laughs> so uh, any time that Marvel uh, editorial would want to bring back elements from those earlier issues, I, I bristled a little bit, but I, you know, I've did as good a job as I could. I just tried to be professional. I, was, I certainly wasn't going to say no because I was new and I wanted the gig. Um, but, you know, for me, James, what James added to it, I felt like was real um, substantive material that I could work with. Mm-hmm. And also, and also he hadn't done much with, with that character, uh, Meriwether. So, I felt like it was an opportunity, and I wasn't. I wasn't just going to cast her aside because James had put her there for a very specific purpose, and had not gotten to uh, have her fulfill that purpose. So it gave me a direction to go in mm-hmm. with her character. So I, again, very grateful to James for for that. For sure. And what, what's striking about, especially your your first year on the book, is how you got to kind of do very non verse things as much as possible. I mean, obviously you had elements with, like, the Hellfire Club, etc., but then you brought in, you know, uh, a whole storyline with S.H.I.E.L.D., and you were kind of pushing the boundaries of what Cable had been up to that point, and I guess it kind of goes to your point that you were trying to do new things that weren't necessarily where the character had been mired in the past because you hadn't really, didn't have as much interest in it. Well, that was it. I mean, that, it was two reasons. One, that's where James was taking the book. Again... I don't think James, just like me, James was a Marvel fan, but not necessarily an X-Men fan, or at least the the X-Universe as it existed in the 90s with all the spinoffs and all the offshoots and everything like that. His interest was in the Marvel Universe, as was mine. That's what I grew up reading. So the Black Panther uh, issue, that was a suggestion of James. Um, and I'm, I'm sure it was a story that he would have done himself not how i did it but just having the black panther guest star in uh the book was one of his original things he wanted to do Mm. um the all the shield stuff was all mine i mean i I think that that's by the time i got there i was feeling pretty comfortable i felt like the gig was mine for the foreseeable future and also in reading those old issues um what was that guy's name? Uh, Bridge. G- uh, G- what was his name? George Washington Bridge. Yep. God, what a name. Um, <laughs> Only in comics. Exactly. He was a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, but so there was a, a, a connection there. And uh, I just looked at it as an opportunity to, to really exploit my Frank Miller fandom, <laughs> um, which is exactly what I did. <laughs> Well, no, I have a question about this. So, throughout your run, you work, you get, for most of your issues, you're working with Ladron. And what was, what was your, 
like, I mean, you're, this is the first time you're actually writing a comic. What's your approach to the script? How are you working with Ladron? Because, um, I mean, those issues look so different than anything else that was really happening at that time. And as a kid, like, I could recognize it was different, but maybe I couldn't put my finger on it. But now as an adult, I'm able to kind of really kind of figure out that he's pulling from so much of, you know, both Steranko and, like, Kirby uh, and really bringing it to life. What was that relationship like? Well, I mean, just to, to, to uh, put a fine point on it, I had written comics a lot before, just none of them had been published, really, yes, and yes, none of them right. that anyone had seen, so I wasn't necessarily new to the form. And with Ladrone, the, the, the cool thing about it, that's, that's the other lucky break that I got, is that my first book professionally out of the gate was with this visionary artist that people were paying attention to and in the industry people were paying attention to them um other writers that were a lot more established than me were jealous as hell that <laughs> i was the guy working with the drone and some tried to steal him away more than once um but you know i had seen Ladrone's work when james showed it to me he showed me the the faxes of the pencils from their first issue together and James was really excited, and um, and uh, I just thought oh, this is amazing. Actually, it wasn't even uh, it wasn't the first issue of that Hellfire Hunt. It was the flashback issue. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember which that. Which was amazing. One of my favorite issues um, that that James wrote. Um, and I just saw this this art, and I just thought, well, that that I'm I connected to it because again. I've since learned to appreciate a lot of it, but at the time, I was I was very much holding on to my 1980s values, and so the whole image comics thing, in terms of the art style and the storytelling style, was not my bag at all, because I felt like, um, I mean, I was a writer, and I and I and I and I, and I thought that the storytelling had its blind spots and I certainly felt it at the time you know and 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 the other thing was that being in vogue for most of the 90s especially the early to mid 90s uh what I've tried to do all on the way if I see a trend going on I my first instinct is to do the exact opposite and I feel like well there, there's a way to distinguish yourself do what's the opposite of what's in vogue and, and at least you'll stand out mm-hmm and so here was this artist who was doing exactly that with his style. Um, I mean, nobody else was... I mean, Ladrone was a mix of Kirby and Mobius, and no one had ever put those two things together. Um, and on top of that, he had a real filmic sense. I mean, he was doing his own version of widescreen comics before that was even a thing. And I just knew, I mean, I studied the issues that James had written for him, and, and I'd seen James's plots, and I'd seen how LeDrone had interpreted them, so I, I mean, I studied them like I was taking a final exam in college, <laughs> because I knew I was going to write for this guy, and I wanted to be prepared, I wanted it to be, um, I, I, you know, I just wanted to be great, and I, and I, met Ladrone in person not long after we started working together and we just 
we got on like a house on fire. We're still really good friends to this day. And we had something to prove, you know. Again, you can tell by Ladrone's influences. He was not a X-Men guy. He was not a, you know, 90s X-verse uh, student. He didn't know, he, again, he was a classic Marvel guy. So it was just a real um, fortuitous collision of, of, of writer and artist who were both into the same things, were, were new enough to be incredibly hungry to do great things. We saw the book as an opportunity to um, have a our own sort of, and I put this in air quotes, kind of classic run on a Marvel book. And we just went for it, you know. Uh, went for it hard, real hard. <laughs> At this point, were you doing kind of Marvel style with plotting, or were you much more detailed with your scripts? I saw I probably half of the half of the run with Ladrone. I did uh, Marvel style, which is plot style, but they were fairly detailed plots, or sort of page by page plots with a lot of dialogue, because that's how James had done it. Uh, so I was just sort of following his format. Mainly because I wanted to not draw too much attention to the fact that I was the new guy, um, <laughs> and uh, so about halfway through, I asked Ladron. I said, "Look, can I can I go to full script because I want to I want to I want to write in that uh, format?" And he said, "Sure." And so I switched over to, to full script at that point. Okay. Now, was there any pushback from Marvel? But the fact that that uh, you were bringing Cable so kind of away from the X universe. I mean, you have him with new, you know, um, supporting cast. You have uh, Stacy and you have Irene, and you have you know new villains like Caesar, etc. Very different. Was there ever any kind of issues with you kind of moving so far away from the traditional X axis, or did they kind of like that you were doing new things with the character? I wouldn't say it was pushback, but they definitely encouraged me to, like I said, include the blacksmith character. They they wanted to keep that apocalypse thread going, so every so often I would reference it a little bit and do the. Very, it's a very '90s X-Men tactic to to tease things without having any idea how the hell you're going to work it out or play it out. Mm-hmm. You know, you put a little nugget of a you know. And there he is out there looking, you know, watching and waiting and plotting and planning. And you have no idea what his plot or his plan is, but it's enough to keep the readers who are invested in that continuity on the hook and feeling like, oh, this is going to be, this is going to turn into something. Mm-hmm. And it's up to the it's up to the writer and the artist to eventually uh, think of what that something is. You know, you've you've seeded these plots, and now you got to now you got to play them out. And I do remember, as I'm as I was writing that book, we were building towards something that I never got to do, uh, which was some old plot that was lying around in the X Men universe about this thing called the Twelve. Mm-hmm. I could not now tell you what the Twelve was, what they meant, what they were supposed to be. <laughs> I think at some point I tried to work out who they were. Like, literally, like, here's the list. Here are the 12. <laughs> and, it, and it was just, ra- you know, random mutants from around the Marvel Universe. And I tried to kind of, from what I remember, make it into some kind of unified theory that made sense and that would be a good payoff. And I don't even, I don't think I ever nailed it. And then, of course, of course I left the book before I even got to it. 
uh, if I remember right, I don't, I didn't read it, but I, they probably, I think they did it not long after I left. They did that whole storyline. I don't know how they. I'm pretty sure it was. Played. I'm pretty sure it was within five months of you leaving. Yeah, well, I, I, I don't know. I wasn't reading it, so no, of course not. <laughs> I, can't, I can't tell you what they did. I'm sure it was excellent, though. I'm sure the X fans were thrilled. <laughs> well. There was mixed reaction, I think, but at least it was finally paid off. Um, one thing I did want to ask you about is, um, so the first issue of your cable run that I remember reading uh, was kind of midway through the run. It was issue 64. It was, uh, it was the origin issue of cable, and that's probably what originally kind of attracted me to it. And it strikes me as a very different narrative structure because um, you have a lot of it's just um, – pages where you have maybe two images and then just text as or Irene's kind of narrating as she's interviewing Cable about his history and you kind of go through uh, Cable's history up until that point. I'm curious what prompted you to go with this kind of choice to use, again, kind of more of a prose um, um, storytelling uh, bent as opposed to traditional comics because you have in certain pages you just have a lot of prose and then you have like one or two accompanying images but not in the typical comic book format. Well, I mean, I, I do remember that issue. I think it was probably two reasons. The first being, um, as a as a guy, I mean, as a comic book fan, and as somebody who's wanted to write them all his life, I was interested in, you know, I mean, pushing the form is a bit much because that's not a huge push. But I wanted to do things. I wanted to do different things. I didn't want to just always do straight panel-to-panel continuity. I wanted to do different types of storytelling if I could, and not not go overboard, but pick my moments and and, um, and just do something different. That was the first reason. The second reason was, um, well, this, I guess there's three reasons. The second reason was that if this Irene Merriweather character was supposed to be sort of a chronicler of Cable's exploits, at some point she'd have to chronicle you know who he is and how he came to be to you know in the parlance um and so i figured if she's doing and it was just an extension of the way we'd been doing her narrative captions in that kind of typeset newspaper style Mm -hmm. so the third reason though was uh my attempt to take what what i thought at the time was a very convoluted backstory um, for that character and presented in a way that anyone who ever picked up this comic or even people who didn't know anything about the character could read and understand and not be confused. Because I do remember a lot of people, um, readers and critics, just being completely confounded by who Cable was and where he came from and who was he supposed to be and what was his connection with, you know, Cyclops and Jean Grey and all all that stuff was very confusing or it seemed confusing and it seemed like it it wasn't landing for a lot of readers. They were kind of half with it. So I thought, well, let me try to solidify that history and, and, and trim it down to something that just made some fucking sense you know what i mean (laughs) uh and again i I would have done that for myself anyway just in in doing background on writing the character uh so i probably had that sort of streamlined 
history already written somewhere, or at least written down in, in notes. So I figured, well, let's, you know, let's put it out there and, and, and see if we can clear up some of the confusion uh, about who this character is. And then going forward, it was like, I, f- I felt like it, it could be maybe somewhat of a clean slate to, to write the, the series from there. Mm-hmm. Um, what uh, um, we talked a little bit about the idea of injecting new characters, but what prompted the, the character of Stacy and the kind of relationship that you had Cable develop with her? Because again, it's very different from anything the character really has ever been engaged with before or since. So it kind of stands out as this interesting moment in his supporting cast. Well, I think uh, if I remember correctly, and I'm pretty sure I'm right, that was a notion that had been talked about between James and the editor. Uh, that he was eventually going to introduce this character who uh, was a waitress in Hell's Kitchen and that possibly had, I think it's it might have been at some point, a, a, um, a son with uh, Down syndrome. And I think I might have changed it to his, her little brother. Mm. Um, I think probably that the consensus was that the thing at Marvel was, just as a little tangent, they always seem to have a problem with Cable being old, um, <laughs> because they, I guess they felt like he, he couldn't connect to the target readership, which you know at that point was still, they'd hoped were still uh, at least teenagers. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I always figured, well, the white hair kind of gives him away, uh, but you know, whatever, I could be wrong with that. So I think to. Um, to have him have a love interest that had a a son might have aged everything up more than they felt comfortable doing. Uh, you know, go figure. I, I probably thought it was stupid then, and it sounds stupid now as I'm saying it out loud. <laughs> but I know that was they always wanted Cable to be younger or act younger or seem younger, and I always thought that's um, to me, that went against part of the appeal of his character, that he was sort of old and grizzled and a sort of Clint Eastwood, unforgiven type of character. Uh, but, you know, what the hell do I know? I was just writing the thing, you know? Well, I can say that, I mean, when this came out, I would have been like 14 or 15 years old, and I definitely still thought it was, you know, a cool character, and I didn't wasn't off-put by him seeming to be old. Um, and again, it's, it is interesting, because everything about him being grim and grizzled kind of works better if he is older. <laughs> Yeah, he'd have to be. How else do you get grizzled? <laughs> well, you know? yeah, it's not earned unless you've you've had you know experience in history, and there's just something about the, his backstory, as convoluted as it was, the idea that there was tons of it, and there was so much of you know his life had been spent in war. It made more sense. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of confusion at Marvel at that time. They were going through a bankruptcy, and and um, it, it was a very strange time. I. I I, you know, I'm of two minds about the chaos of Marvel in the in the mid to late '90s. Number one, it was it was tough and tough to uh, be there for it. At the same time, it was the chaos probably allowed me to get in there and and get the job in the first place. So I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lament it too much because it's probably responsible for me actually working there for as long as I did. Now, when you left Cable, what, what was the circumstances of that? Was it your decision to say, I, I want to try something else? or uh, No, the decision was they, they, they took Ladrone off the book, and 
they were going to bring uh, Rob Liefeld back to draw it. That's right. And by then I'd met Rob, and, and, and Rob's a good guy. He's great to hang out with. And um, he loved what Ladrone and I were doing. He loved the fact that we put his cable character that he created in the Marvel Universe big time. He thought it was fantastic. Um, and I'm not quite sure why... I, well, the other part... The, again, going back to doing something that's a, opposite of the trends, <laughs> Cable, when we came onto the book, or when I came onto the book, it was a top 20 book on the, on the Diamond Charts. It sold really, really well. Over the course of my 20 issues, mostly with Ladrone, as, as with most things at that point in time, sales started dropping off. But uh, nobody would admit that it was just, you know, the industry collapsing. They would they would always think that well, we're, it's it's the content. It's the if we can if we have the right content, then we can sell the numbers that we sold in you know 1992. You know, go figure. <laughs> and so with, uh, so so they they so you know Ladrone got as many. Um, complaints about his art as he did uh, compliments from letters and you know the readership or what whatnot because again it was so different than what was popular there was a certain amount of uh, of the fans that were not having it um, and they were a vocal bunch and I think at, at some point Marvel was like well we're going to try to stop the stop the attrition the sales attrition hmm. and. As it so happened, uh, Liefeld was sort of back in the mix at Marvel, and they they came up with this thing to bring him back. And he he liked the book so much, and of course it was his character, so he had a vested interest in it doing well. He agreed to come back. Now, again, I um, I wouldn't change anything that I uh, how it went down, but I was very loyal to Ladrone, and. Even though Marvel wanted me to stay, and Rob wanted me to stay, and Rob and I talked about it, um, I just couldn't, you know, I couldn't do it. I mean, Ladrone's such a nice, pleasant human being that he took getting sacked a lot, he took it a lot better than I did. I was, you know, outraged. I was beside myself. How could they do this? They're breaking up this partnership. Um so I, I left the book out of solidarity for, uh, for Ladrone, basically. Mm-hmm. He didn't ask me to, and I, he, he probably would have argued against me leaving, but I felt pretty confident I could, I'd had more jobs. I, I didn't feel like it was a career ender. I had other things going on at Marvel. It, it was not, um, it was not a, I didn't leave in a huff. Uh, the only um, hiccup in the plan was that I actually uh, went public with it before anybody said anything. I, I, I think um, Newsarama was like a new thing at the time, but it was it was turning into the news source of comic book online fandom. And uh, so I just went to them and said, "Yeah, they kicked Ladron off, and I'm leaving too." And you know. Um, they didn't like that, but they got over it. <laughs> now, you, you mentioned vaguely that you were, you know, obviously you had other projects going at the time. 
And I wanted to ask you about one of them. Um, I guess you had, I'm going to call it the unenviable, ta- unenviable task of following up Peter David on The Incredible Hulk. Yeah. Now, how did that happen? That's a big gig considering how long Peter David had been on that book and how well-received it had been. So that's, that's intimidating, I guess, for anyone to, to come on to such a situation. So how did you get tapped for that book? Well, I mean, no offense to Peter. I'd never read his Hulk, really. Uh, I'd read his issues with Todd McFarlane. That's as, that's, that's, that's as much of his very long and respectable run as I'd ever read. So it wasn't, I wasn't intimidated because I didn't know. But what happened was when I got the cable gig, this is what happens to new writers. And it, to this day it happens when they, when they get in at Marvel or DC or whatever. You're, you're young, you're new, and you're cheap. So you're a, so you're a valuable resource for the the, the grinding gears of monthly production. Um, so after doing cable for a few months, there was a big um, writers and editorial summit back east, which was my first one. I flew out for it, and I went to the Marvel offices for the first time, and I met all of the other editors there. Because every editor at Marvel, for the most part, along with whatever titles they were editing, also would edit like one X book, you know, usually. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I met everybody, and again, being the the new guy who was you know young and cheap and hungry to work, um, I got a lot of jobs out of that summit alone, just from those, those meeting those editors, I got some one shots some annuals, you know, and meeting, um, uh, Bobby Chase, who was uh, the editor on the Hulk at that time. Um, I think I, it just put me in her mind because the other thing was the reason Peter left is from the story that I heard, um, was that they wanted to go back to the quote unquote dumb Hulk. Because I guess Peter had been writing this uh, Hulk with Bruce Banner's brain for years and years and years at that point, and Marvel editorial was like, "Well, we want to take it back to the to what you could consider the status quo of the Hulk. Uh, you know, smart Banner, uh, dumb Hulk." And and Peter didn't want to do it, so he left. Um, and they needed somebody to come in, and I think at that point. Plans were already in the works to end the book and relaunch it with um, somebody else, some other big name or whatever. And so my time on the Hulk was a very – was an interim time, and I think I knew that going in. I think Bobby Chase had come to me and said, look, you know, uh, we need seven issues of the Hulk basically. Um and I said, all right, you know, it's just, you know, and I, you know, I knew, again, that put me in even further into the Marvel universe and those issues, you know, you read those issues and, uh, you can see again, I'm using a lot, I used a lot of Hulk lore, but I also, I think I brought in, uh, the super adaptoid yeah. for an issue. I, I think, um, brought in the circus of crime, which were Hulk villains, but to me, I, I'd known them from being in the Avengers and all that kind of stuff. And, um, it just, so I was happy to have the gig. Also, 
working with two great artists on that. I was working with uh, Javier Polito, who I didn't know, but again, another, uh, you know, he was a, a Spanish artist who I thought was fantastic and loved working with him. And then Ed McGinnis for two issues, who I hadn't worked with before and didn't know, but that was the first time he and I had worked together. We went off to do other things uh, after that. So, um, from what I remember, it was a pretty good experience. Um, I think I, uh, I, if I remember, I probably, I think I caught a little bit of flack just doing the gig, and I probably did some things during that run that pissed people off too, which I normally do when I write established <laughs> characters, but. Um, I thought it was a pretty good gig, and I had a pretty good time doing it. Hmm. Uh, to move forward a little, I've always been curious. So you got to do uh, 11 issues of the Deathlock series, mm-hmm. a very yeah. spe- specific version of Deathlock. And unfortunately, I don't think we've ever really seen the character since, but what was that experience like to be able to take an established kind of concept but do something different with it? Well, that was the mandate. I mean, they told me, they said, hey, you know that... Um, character you created in for cable that jack truman character i said yes they said well we're going to turn him into the new Deathlock." i said okay uh <laughs> great so do you want to write the book and i thought well i never really had a Deathlock thing i mean I, I knew the character but i wasn't it just didn't do much for me um i'm not big into those kind of future apocalyptic scenario stories it's not my bag but I didn't have to do any of that they just said do what you want with it they had the whole cyberpunk mtech line idea to go in you know so the gig was mine to take or not take and oddly enough I think that one of the reasons I took it uh, well there are multiple reasons um, but one of them was it would be I'd have I'd be writing a number one issue of a Marvel comic, mm. which in 1999 or whatever it was, I got that gig was not a common thing in terms of monthly series, miniseries. Yes. But, um, I thought, wow, how often does that happen? I mean, little did I know that, <laughs> you know, five, six, seven years later, everything would be getting renumbered every other year. I and mean, it was just, it got stupid. But at the time I thought this is, this is a real, privilege to launch a marvel comics monthly you know i mean i I was naive enough to think maybe it will go on for years and years and years who the hell knows you know Mm -hmm. so that's that's aesthetically i took it for that reason another reason was the original artist on that series the artist i tried to get on that series at first was ashley wood oh wow um yeah and it was going to be our first collaboration again i was a big fan of his stuff We'd got I'd, we'd gotten into contact somehow. I don't quite remember how, um, but um, we tried to make it work. But I, for whatever, I don't think maybe they couldn't pay him what he wanted. I don't know. Um, but uh, Leo Menko was a pretty good second choice, and aside from a couple of weird design um, related snafus. Uh, he was great, and and other artists that worked on that series were fantastic too. Eric Kennedy, as the first time I worked with Eric Kennedy mm-hmm. uh, on a couple fill-ins, and later in the run, I worked. I mean, 
I can say I worked with him because it makes me feel good. I had no contact with him, but um, John Buscema drew one of the last issues of that book, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm super proud that I got to work with the guy. I think he probably was only about a year or two years out from his uh, passing. So I feel really lucky, and just as a comic book historian, I think mm-hmm. that's that was a real big deal for me at the time. You know? I want to ask, what was it like to work with Steve Rude on uh, Children of the Atom? Uh, intense and eye-opening. <laughs> um, Steve is a, is a character, and um, it was... It was... A, it was uh, I'll tell you what, working with Steve definitely uh, got me in the mindset of really, I mean, I'd been there already because I was, I was young, again, young and energetic and stubborn and all those things that tend to get you into trouble with figures of authority. Um, but Steve was a legitimate hero of mine. I mean, I loved Nexus when I was a teenager. I loved that comic so much, loved his work and followed him on everything that he'd ever done. Um, and to work with him was amazing, but he really taught me how to um, be not not more stubborn, but just how to stand on your principles uh, in, a, in a positive way. I mean, what happened with Steve, he only did three issues of that six-issue series, and... Uh, he was fired from that book because he was just going t- too slow for their tastes. You know, uh, this was pre Casada. Had Casada been editor in chief, I don't think it would have been a problem at all. He would have written it out. Casada would have known exactly what he was getting with Steve Rude. And uh, but the previous uh, editorial administration was not going to stand for it. And 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 Steve refused to quit. But he also refused to compromise quality. And um, so they fired him. And that, it taught me a real lesson. And I'd never seen that happen before. I'd never seen anybody, certainly not in comics, but just I'd never seen anybody do that where they say, well, I'm not going to quit and I'm not going to skimp on the quality of my work. So you do what you got to do. And, but that's what he did. And I, you know, in retrospect, you know, I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I'd do anything differently. My, I mean, I certainly didn't leave with him. I finished out the series, um, and it's funny because the guys who took over for him, first of all, Paul Smith took over for like two thirds of an issue, and then he fucked off to God knows where, jumped on his motorcycle and drove out to the desert for you know where there were no phones apparently. And then the last two issues were done by uh, Isad Ribic, who was just starting out then and was very, very green, and his art was still in its formulative stages. He turned out to be a fucking phenomenal artist. Uh, just, I mean, didn't he just do that Marvel Legacy, the, the one-shot they just did that was basically their version of the DC Rebirth one-shot, but didn't he draw... Yeah, the main part of that. I mean, he's he turned out to be his stuff astounding. Is amazing. Yeah, his stuff is amazing. Yeah, back then, 
he was just kind of like a he he wasn't so amazing. <laughs> he was he was good enough, but he was he wasn't in the league of Steve Root or Paul Smith. Um, and I'm sure he would agree with that too. I mean, he 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 took that job because he could do it fast. Mm-hmm. Um, so that series kind of puttered out. I mean, it started strong, real strong, and um, you know, didn't end strong. And I, and and I don't think how I ended the story was any great shakes either. So I'm not. I wouldn't put it on anybody else. The the success or lack of success of that book it sold well enough but as from as a story i think um i look back and i probably could have i could have come up with a better ending than i had i thought it started good it was it was it was a fun archaeological project it was taking all these disparate story threads and trying to make them have them make sense and fit together in a more logical way and not be so random uh so the issues that i did with steve i thought turned out pretty well beyond that i you know i don't know what to tell people except you know sorry (laughs) um i know we're we're running close to the end of our time here today but i I would be remiss if i didn't ask about you know how did you handle the transition to suddenly working on the adventures of superman over at dc i mean that's a big jump obviously you had work with other publishers but that's a pretty big top line kind of flagship type book well what had happened was i'd gotten in over at wildstorm before they were sold to dc like right before they were sold to dc so uh with ed mcginnis uh and a and a and the only guy I've ever really co-written with extensively, a, a great writer named Brian Holguin, we did this book for D, for Wildstorm called Mr. Majestic, mm-hmm. which was basically a Superman analog. Yeah. And we wrote him as a Superman analog. That's a, that's the our interest in that character was, hey, we get to do Superman without doing Superman. Well, I, you know, again, that take on that character got enough attention that um, when DC bought Wildstorm, I was already entrenched over there, and they were also they also stole in McGinnis to do Superman. <laughs> um, so at some point, that's all flying in the air, and then new guys came in to write Superman, and, and they happened to be friends of mine, you know Joe Kelly, who's one of my partners in Man of Action, and Jeff Loeb, who I gotten to know. Uh, previously as well and when that book had a vacancy uh they they recommended me for the job they felt like because we were friends that we would it would we could gel and and the coordination between those four superman books mark schultz was the other um writer who i did not know was a fantastic guy i knew his work he's he was great and the four of us had a great time um you know it's the only it's the only time where that kind of really structured um, coordination between a family of titles really, I felt, worked well. I mean, your mileage may vary on what what you think of the material, but I can say behind the scenes, it was fairly harmonious between the writers. Um, we all got along. We all were digging on what each other were, was doing. So that part of it was great, you know. And again, I was lucky enough to um, get um, 
we got Mike Ringo to draw roughly my first year's worth of stories. And, you know, God rest his soul, Mike is a fantastic artist and an underrated Superman artist, I feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, his version was fantastic. So great. So just, it, it, you know, there are certain artists that their style is almost like a, it just gives you the warm fuzzies and not in a, <laughs> and not in a soft way. It just, it just makes you relax and enjoy what you're looking at. It's just, just so pleasing to the eye. And Mike's work was that. And him on Superman was just such a joy. And he was up to, um, he was up for the collaboration because I had a certain style that I wanted to employ in my Superman comic, at least in that first year or so. Um, again, what that I ripped off from Frank Miller, uh, basically I took his, the way he, did Sin City and applied it to Superman, which is a weird <laughs> sort of mashup. But that's that storytelling uh, style I was interested in at the time. I thought it would work great with Superman because it was Sin City at first was all big panels, um, and I think it was also something that Warren Ellis had appropriated for something, and then he really broke it down on why it was an interesting storytelling form. And I was like, well, if Warren Ellis says it's cool, then I, I, it must be cool. So let's <laughs> let's give it a try and let's let's apply it to the biggest comic book icon ever. I mean, Superman, by and large, had never been a comic that had been associated with storytelling style or any kind of cutting edge uh, storytelling form. So I thought, well, maybe maybe this will be a step in that direction. Why can't Superman? have that kind of um you know format uh for lack of a better term i mean why you know it's it works on any comic you know so why not superman mm-hmm. no, you de- and you definitely as you said you definitely had a lot of amazing artists during your run like uh just looking at some of the lists of this of the superman artists you got to work with uh they really they really brought a special energy to the book which paired up nicely with your your take on the character yeah i i totally agree i, I don't think there was I, there wasn't a bad one that bunch. Now, after Ringo left, most of the guys that came on had were my recommendation. Um, I think we got Pete Woods for a couple of issues. I loved Pete's stuff at the time. We got Charlie Adlard uh, in for a couple of issues, which I'd worked with him before. Uh, I was good friends with him. Um, uh, Derek Oakwin, who is now known as Derek Donovan, he he was a friend of mine. I. I known him and he'd done a couple of fill-ins already so he did my last year on that book for the most part and did a fantastic job i he had to draw some outlandish shit and uh did it did it very well i thought oh and carlos meglia carlos meglia god rest his soul he did he did the um the earth two uh issues that i did and he fantastic artist holy christ he was amazing now what um what kind of led to the the ending of your superman run oh um i think that era of of that i guess that period of superman was just coming to an end I'd, i'd written the book at that point for three and a half years and i think i we all went into that last year kind of knowing it was our last year. That's why I kind of really blew it out 
with a, t- just, you know, I did this whole self-imposed thing. I said, I, Superman's not going to throw a punch for a year. <laughs> you know, I thought, why is, you know, Superman, that's just, you know, Superman's the strongest guy pretty much in the DC universe. Why would he resort to those kind of bully tactics? You know, he should, there should be more imagination to those stories. There should be more, uh, you know, he should deal with things in a much more, clever maybe sci-fi based way and so I put that in, in I imposed that onto my last year and uh, and it worked I got a year out of it you know I got a year out of it where I, I might otherwise had felt like eh, I'm just treading water here that just that gave me the added juice to kind of start or uh, finish strong I thought I finished I thought I began strong on Superman and ended strong on Superman. In the middle, I was kind of, it was kind of so-so, but the beginning and the end of my run, I thought, worked out pretty well. I was pretty happy with it. Now, what's interesting as well is that in the middle of your, your run on Superman, you're also writing one of the you know the biggest X-Men books, because you're writing Uncanny X-Men at the same time. What is it like kind of juggling two pretty big flagship you know characters at the same time? Well, uh, at the time, I thought it was a hell of a coup. I, you know, it was uh, I was writing the biggest franchise in the in the industry, and then the biggest icon in the industry. So I was patting myself on the back big time. What I didn't take into account was, from a political point of view, um, it might have been a rod for my own back because uh, I've never signed exclusive to either Marvel nor DC in. in 20 years of, of comics whereas most writers of my generation and and beyond that was the game you'd sign exclusive to DC for a while then you'd go get a better deal at Marvel and you'd be exclusive over there for a while then you'd go back to DC and it was this kind of ping pong game that you, you played with your career um, and I suppose it, it allowed you to get better deals get better page rates or I, I don't know I guess that I mean that had to be the the, the reason get just better treatment um, but I just I never did that and so I probably never benefited from the uh, encampment at one publisher getting wooed by the other you know you get wined and dined then you go to that publisher and then they you know they start to uh, uh, take you for granted and you know, treat you like shit a little bit. Then the other publisher woos you back and it's all wine and roses and you get the, you know, it's this back and forth ego stroke, I suppose. Um, and I just, I, for some reason I felt like I never, I never wanted to be exclusive to any one publisher. Um, I don't know why at this point, but I, I mean, I just, I felt like my independence I, it meant something to me. I mean, it still does, but it, it, I felt like, well, again, everybody's doing this back and forth thing. I'll, I'll not do it. Yeah. And that's, I'll, 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 I'll that's how I'll take some sort of stand. I would, what stand I was taking, I couldn't tell you now. But I remember <laughs> at the time I felt like this is, this, this works for me. Um, and, and listen, maybe that's, maybe I'm just telling myself that, but, it seems to have worked out uh, okay. I'm not. Uh, my career didn't suffer too much because of it. I got to 
I got to write all the characters I want to wanted to write. Once I was, once I'd written some some Avengers stuff and some Iron Man stuff, I you know I, I have nothing to. I, I would I wanted for nothing after that. Um, those 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 books really scratched that seven year old's itch to want to write for Marvel and want to write for DC or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so once I did it, I, I, I guess I didn't necessarily see the point of the back and forth, the back and forth. There's only so many characters and so many slots available. So I, I, you know, I felt like maybe it was, it was a better, it was a better move to just take myself out of that rat race. Um, cause I got to do the things I wanted to do anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, I, was, I never felt like, gee, if I signed exclusive with Marvel, I'd get to write so-and-so character. I got to write those characters anyway. And not only did I get to write those characters, I got to write them in the incarnations that I loved them best. I mean, people would ask me why I wrote, you know, Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes and Fantastic Four First Family and Iron Man Enter the Mandarin and, you know, all these kind of historical based uh, uh, series well I did it because th- that was the versions of the characters that I was the most attached to you know and it, for me it made the most sense if I was going to write those characters I was going to write them to write them in in modern day like I was a big Hawkeye guy when I was a kid but if I was to write the, the Hawkeye that I, that I would have been writing in the mid aughts was not. I mean, first of all, he died. That's one thing. <laughs> but aside from his untimely death, it, it, it just did not. I, he did not. He was not the Hawkeye that I grew up reading. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And instead of um, expending a lot of effort to try to pull some a character back to where I think he should be, which is just my opinion. Uh, Hawkeye has done quite well without anybody trying to make him back into the the character he was in the sixties and seventies and the eighties. Um, it just it's it was a lot easier and a lot more fun to just write the character in that time period, or at least when those issues were were happening. Because then I I didn't have to expend any energy pulling him back; he was already there. Mm-hmm. So that made a lot more sense to me, and that's that's why I did so many of those. I mean, they they were offered to me. Some of them I pitched to Marvel. Some of them they, they offered to me. But um, I, you know, I wouldn't have had it any other way. I don't think I'm 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 as proud of those um, Avengers stories, most of them anyway, as I would have been if I'd have written, you know, five years on the on the monthly series. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Oh, for sure. And uh, honestly, speaking of the Avengers books, I would love to have you back another time to ju- just, just even just talk about those three books because those three books are absolutely amazing. Um, well, let's do it. Let's do it now. I got, I got a few minutes. Let's go for it. Okay. Um, well, uh, first of all, like, how did the first one come about? Because that first one with Scott Collins is, I mean, it's it's something special. I mean, the, uh, the first of all, his art is electric. It really brings to life the the, the giant. Uh, characters of that era, but yeah, as you said, you kind of you tap into this very primal version of the of the original kind of nascent Avengers. How did that book even happen? Okay, let's see. That I remember a little more clearly. Um, what happened was, 
I hadn't worked for Marvel in a couple of years, and I ran into Joe Casada just in passing at probably San Diego, and said, "Hey, how you doing? Good to see you." <laughs> and then we started emailing, and he was like, very nicely saying, "Hey, why don't you why aren't you writing for Marvel right now?" I said, "Well, because." The one book I want to write is not available. I want, you know, I want to write the Avengers. That's that's really the only thing at Marvel I'm interested in. Um, which was not necessarily true, but I, I was making a play. And he said, "Well, listen, you talk to Tom Brevoort and and just start, just have a conversation with him, and let's see what's let's see what's up." And I says, "Great." I'd known Tom, <clears throat> I'd known Tom Brevoort since I started at Marvel. I think he's one of the best editors of the past 30 years at Marvel. Um, and I say that for two reasons. One, I think he's a great editor. Number two, I say it because he and I are very, have always been very simpatico on what we love about Marvel and, and, um, and just our ideas about what a Marvel comic should be tend to align. Uh, and when they don't, the third great thing about Tom is that he will not just shut down an idea. He'll say, uh, you have to convince me of that. You have to uh, explain to me why we should do this. And I loved those conversations with Tom. Those were fantastic. So Tom and I were talking, and the writer on the Avengers book at the time turned out to be not such a popular guy in comics, as it turns out. Uh just from a fandom point of view. Uh, and again, this was back, I guess, when maybe they still do, but it was in the air that Marvel might make a change, right? Mm-hmm. So Tom and I started talking about um, taking over the Avengers Monthly. And I came up with a bunch of ideas and we were spitballing back and forth. And as a side thing, we were also, Tom also brought up, said, look, I've been batting around this Avengers Year One idea, and I haven't found anybody who uh, wanted to do it. Would you want to do it? And I said, yeah, absolutely. So we started concurrently developing that. And the first guy that I wanted to draw that book was Sean Phillips. Hmm. Uh, because you know, just, I'd worked with Sean on Wildcats. He, he and I were friends. I thought he would be... Um, really great at, at a really different way of doing it. I knew that, and I knew that Sean had the Kirby bigness in him. He just never been given the material to do it, you know, but I mean, the guy can draw anything and his storytelling is top notch. So I thought this would be great. And we'd worked together before fans knew us as a, as a team. I thought this would be great. Well, I couldn't convince Joe Quesada that Sean was the right guy for the gig. Um, and I, funnily enough, Sean did find huge commercial success at Marvel just like a couple years later doing the Marvel Zombies miniseries with Kirkman. Um, it was a big, big deal. So the next guy that was brought up, and I don't remember who brought him up. It might have been Brevoort because he'd done, I guess he'd done some Avengers fill-ins at that point, was Scott. And I thought, great, because the thing that I saw in Scott's work was that um, he was a guy like George Perez, who's a classic um, Avengers artist. If you give him a page that has 
six panels, he could turn it into ten panels and it not look crowded, you know. And there's not a lot of guys who can do that, and very few. I count them on one hand. <laughs> Most artists will opt to do fewer panels uh, and try to squeeze more out of them. But but Scott was a very was very much into that sort of dense storytelling. I thought that's that's fucking great. I love that. So that's how he got on the book, and um, it was again. It was one of those things where I I, I, I was able to go back and and do. Uh, it was an archaeology expedition, you know, to find the gaps in the original set of issues and to find the logic gaps and how do we how do we close those logic gaps and how do we bridge events so that it seems like, you know, the 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 challenge of those old stories is that Kirby and Ditko and Stan Lee and all those guys were going completely by the seat of their pants. They were not. They were thinking. Not even a month ahead. Every time they sat down to write a, you know, the next issue or to draw the next issue, they were making it up as they went along. And you can tell that if you really study those issues. So it's, you know, to go back and say, well, how can we make this seem like more of a cohesive story? That's interesting to me. That's, I mean, that's a fanboy dream. If you grew up reading Marvel comics, you spent half of your time thinking about that kind of shit, you know. Uh, how does this fit with that? And how does this event coincide with that event? How does this character, how is this character over here when he's over there? And, you know, it's just <laughs> all fans do it. So to be able to do it professionally was like, this is, this is great. Um, so yeah, that, I thought that first, uh, Earth's My Series, that of those, of those historical series, that was a big one. That, that might be close to the pinnacle just because I think it, it's another one of those things where it got stronger as it, as it went on. When I was able to show how Hawkeye joined the team and how the Visions, uh, uh, Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch uh, came into the picture, that stuff just, I was real happy with that. And the thing that really pisses me off is that, you know, I do these things and I, I, I stupidly think that I'm, um, uh, adding to the canon. In other words, the Hawkeye uh, bit of, of how he joined the Avengers mm-hmm. to me did not violate what was in the original uh, story. Everything that I added to it, I'd learned uh, from other writers like Kurt Busiek on Untold Tales of Spider-Man that if you do it right, you're, you're never... Uh, inviolate of what has already been published. You're just augmenting it with the stuff that happened between the panels, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and what's great about that is I just never bought that Jarvis would have, you know, let himself get captured, or that Hawkeye could have even gotten to Avengers Mansion and tied him up, you know. Uh, so I figured, well, if they'd planned it out beforehand as a way for Jarvis to kind of semi-trick the Avengers into looking at Hawkeye in a different way because they'd known him as a, as a bad guy. Mm-hmm. That that made sense to me. And I, I, I tell you what, I, I spent many, many a minute patting myself on the back for that one. <laughs> and no one else has ever picked up on No one else has ever, like, referred back to it. 
you know, and I didn't write it as a goddamn Elseworlds. It was meant to be the re- this was the real story. Yeah. Of what happened, so you know, but that I mean, everybody complains about that that they they, they lay something down in a comic and and it gets ignored or whatever, and it's not a it's not a it's not a new gripe. Mm-hmm. Um, well, one thing I, I I really always loved, and I'm sure you've heard of this before, heard other people thank you for it before, was um, the beat you had with Captain America at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Right. Yeah. Because um, that that felt so quintessentially Cap. You know, like that's one of those character beats where you didn't need to include it, but including it in there said volumes about the character and just felt right. Well, the thing that Brevoort and I talked about early on, once I once I'd reopened those old issues and studied what was there, and those, I mean, the first Earth's Mightiest Heroes. Yes, it's an Avenger story, but it's really a Captain America story. His, it's his arc of being thought out of the ice, coming to terms with where he is now, assimilating to the world, dealing with uh, this new team of heroes, and then taking it over at the end with these new uh, team members. Th- that's that's the arc of the first Earth's Mightiest Heroes. It's all about Cap. So to not have those, I mean, that's a to him. That's a to me. That's a. a the ultimate man out of time moment is what's happened in the world while you've been gone and what specifically has happened in your own milieu. In this case, you know, uh, war and conflict and the military and all that stuff. That's Cap's world. So to have missed, um, you know, of course the sliding time scale in Marvel comics means that whenever it came out, 2004, I think it came out or 2005, I was writing it as though it was taking place in the mid to late 90s, you know. So Cap had missed, you know, the whole of Vietnam and all, you know, Desert Storm and all this stuff. The, he had missed the most uh, conflicted um, areas of our uh you know our forays into foreign policy. Let's let's call them. You know our, our excursions into uh, other nations with our military might, um, wars that were never declared but fought anyway. He missed all of it, and so you know, trying to find the economy of, in storytelling of that moment, there's there wasn't anything better than the than the, the Memorial Wall, the Vietnam Wall. You know, because it's. It's the names of the soldiers, right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, that's that's exact. That's who he, you know, always empathized with. That's exactly where he would go. So yeah, that that moment just fucking wrote itself. I forget did I have him? Uh, did I have him at the JFK Eternal Flame too? I forget. Uh, no, that I can't I thought, remember. I thought that was the other moment that he would he would go to, and and because uh, that would be the the president that had been assassinated which would be normally sort of on his watch but of course he missed it you know that he might feel some responsibility for that or some guilt over not being there for that you know Mm -hmm. so how do you how do you after the first series which as you said is a, a great captain america story i mean it's interesting seeing him as it seems always to be fun for writers to write 
cap, not as the cap we kind of are used to now, where he's still a little unsure. He's still getting his footing. Like he's he's more feet of clay than we're used to him being in the kind of current continuity. Usually, uh, how do you go from that series to the second mini series? Was that them saying like the first one went really well? Let's do another, or how did that kind of come about? Well, I, you know, it it was a mutual thing. I wanted to do it. <clears throat> um, that, in fact, that I was at the time I was more excited about that period of doing those, you know, sort of a the same kind of story, but in that period of, of the of the Avengers history than I was the first one, um, which is one of those lessons in. You know, sometimes the things that are closest to you don't work out as well as you'd hoped. I don't necessarily think the second one was as artistically successful, creatively successful, I guess I should say. Um, and I thought I had some good ideas and I had some good um, takes on the established continuity. I mean, I'm still, I'm still pretty tickled with the notion that. Um, you know, Goliath or Hank Pym becomes Yellow Jacket and shows up to Avengers Mansion. And in the in the original Roy Thomas comics, they're like, "Who is this Yellow Jacket? What does he want? What is this all about?" And in my version of it, they're all they look at him and go, "Why is Hank Pym dressed in this new costume?" <laughs> you know, I just cut right. I mean, they have the equipment. They scan him. It's Hank Pym under that mask. You know, what's what the hell is going on? <laughs> Uh, and that the, the 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 ruse of pretending that he is a different person is all to maintain his psychotic state so he doesn't have a break and just go completely nuts, you know. I was I got a big kick out of that, but I think the execution for whatever reason didn't hit, you know. Um and I might have, it might be me, have been me calling up my own ass on the material. Um, but it just, it didn't land like the first one did, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I take that on myself. It's not, if, if anybody's at fault, it was me. Cause I, it was, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure that Brevoort probably tried to talk me out of a couple things that I was able to talk him into. Um, I'm sure that I insisted on sequences that probably were not serving the story, but for some reason they were filling some hole in my soul. Who the hell knows, you know? Um, well, I can tell but, you, uh, I can tell you I do enjoy it a lot. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of the work. I mean, I'm not, but I, I, I'll say this, um, and you, I mean, not that you were going to ask about it, but I'll say it anyway. The one that I'm proudest of is the one that that I'm sure is is the most obscure. There was a, there was a mini series about six years ago called Hulk Smash Avengers. Oh yeah, and uh, it was. Again, it was a historical series. It was different creative teams for every issue. And it went through, issue one took place in the 60s, you know, the, the quote-unquote 60s, that time of the Avengers history. Issue two was the 70s. Issue three was the 80s. Uh, issue four was the, um, 
the I don't know I don't, I hit to the nineties, and then the issue five was the present day. I, I forget because I only I did the, the second issue, the seventies issue, which that was my perfect Avengers period. The David Michelinie, John Byrne period. That was my in my DNA when I loved that book the most was that time period. And to to get to write that issue and to get it right, I that I just for one issue I excavated the whole every every Marvel comic that came out the month of when this story was supposed to take place i looked at i studied i I compared timelines i made sure everybody was in the right place i mean i went nuts on this thing and uh it turned out so great i got the balance just right it felt just right i got to have henry uh in there it was amazing and it was part of this wacky miniseries that nobody really gave a fuck about, so nobody really saw it. But it was drawn by um, what's this guy's name? Um, the guy who drew he did the, uh, he does a lot of Mignola stuff now. Uh, oh, uh, Max Fi- Max Fiamara is his name. Oh yes. Yeah, he did. He also did Four Eyes with Joe Kelly, which was the image comic they did together. Nice. This guy's amazing, <laughs> and so it looked great. And it was, you know, the Hulk fighting the the, the the roster of Avengers that I connected to the most as a kid. I mean, I was just happier than a pig in shit. And um, <laughs> and again, it's sort of one of those things that comes and goes. But for me, it this that one issue dwarfs all of the other. Avengers-related stuff that I did, even the first Earth's Mightiest Heroes, because it was my favorite era, and I and I and I got it right. I feel like I got it right. Um, so yeah, and it's out in trade. I mean, I don't even know if it's probably not even in print anymore. But uh, it's called Hulk Smash Avengers, and I'm sure the other stories are crafted with just as much love and care as mine was. So <laughs> it's um, it's it's worth finding, I think. Well, my, my closing question on Avengers then is that after having done the two Earth's Mightiest Heroes, how did the, how did the Avengers, the origin, come about? That was Brevoort coming to me and asking me if I wanted to do it, basically. I mean, they knew that the, um, the, the, the movie stuff was starting to coalesce. Uh, this was after Iron Man, but before Captain America and Thor came out. Okay. But they were in production, so so um, they knew they were headed towards an Avengers movie. Uh, so again, just like we were talking about the cable stuff, it was like, what is some product we can get in the pipeline to sort of take advantage and have it so that when we do an event, they do an Avengers movie, there's product on the shelves, you know. And the funny thing about that was, uh, again, I was trying to think, well, you know, how do we do this to modernize it so it's not just the Ultimates, really? I mean, to do a movie version of the Avengers is the Ultimates, as far as I'm concerned. You can't do it better than that mm-hmm. on paper. So I thought, well, and we got Phil Noto as the artist, great artist. And I thought, well, one thing we could do, we've got... 
most of the of the characters in the you know the original Avengers have movies either made or ha- are being made about them. So my in- initial pitch to Brevoort was, look, let's have Phil Noto draw the characters as close to their movie versions as we can get. In other words, even though it was going to be the the, the the gold tin can Iron Man, I wanted Phil to draw him like the Mach 1 armor in the first Iron Man, the one he builds in the cave. Mm-hmm. But just instead of it being gray, it being gold. So it would be this big kind of exposed gears and real primitive-looking golden Iron Man suit. And I said, well, you know, they're making Cap and uh, Thor, so we at least can get a hold of some design stuff. We know what they're going to look like. So but when this when this thing comes out and it's collected somewhere down the line, it really looks like the movie versions. And it's and for anyone who sees the movie and has no idea about the comics, that visual bridge is right there you know that you can make the connection and that got shot down uh which again in hindsight (laughs) was a huge mistake because it wasn't it was you know three four years later where everything that marvel was doing was meant to you know align with the movie visuals you know they you know now there's a black nick fury now there's you know everything now four is dressed in all kinds of wacky stuff that looks more like his movie costume than it ever looked like his Kirby costume. Mm. You know, Iron Man looks like the movie Iron Man, everything. Cap looks like the movie Cap. So it's, that always seems to, that always chaps my ass a little bit when you're ahead of the curve and you get shut down. Oh, we can never do that. And then they just end up doing it, you know, four or five years later. You, 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 I'm sure you'll, you know, you'll hear me grinding my teeth, you know, somewhere in the world, like, oh, god damn it, I had that, you know, I told him to do that ages ago, and uh, it's happened like three, four times in my career, and at Marvel specifically, which is hysterical, you know, um, <laughs> it's hard to be pressing at Marvel, you know, you know, you're not rewarded for pressings at Marvel, um, but you know. Here I am talking about it on a podcast, so I guess it's getting out there somehow. The truth will be heard. <laughs> well, it's interesting you say that, though, because, I mean, I I totally get what you're saying. Like, obviously, but I also, I, I like the, the iconic kind of look to it as well, because I'm a comic fan first and a movie fan second. Um, so I'm conflicted, because I agree with you that it probably maybe would have sold better if it looked more and. and would have maybe held up more in terms of being a seller if it kind of looked more like what people are used to from the movies. But as a comic book fan, I like that they look like they should have in the original origins. I agree with that, but I, I but I, I just think that if you're updating an or an origin story, you're updating any story, True. and trying to set it. I mean, my feeling is, especially with that story, um. You know, you can fudge it as being it's in a sort of a science fiction milieu, so the technology is better. But I was really, as I do with most things, even the historical uh, based comics, I set them in the here and now. They're taking place now. You know, one thing I learned growing up reading comics, and somebody said this in an interview somewhere when I was growing up, is that comics are 
written, especially when they were they were heavy captions in comics, a lot of captions, but they're written in the present tense. So that if you're picking up an issue of a comic that was written in 1965, when you're reading it, it's meant to be taking place right then and there. Whether you read it in 1985, 1995, or 2015, captions are written in the present tense. That's, you know, whether that's, you know, yeah, it's a stylistic choice, but it does ground every comic in the moment that you're reading it. And so I just extrapolated from that when I would do these historical comics. I said, well, if you want to connect with a modern audience, you've got to give them their backyard, not a 60s backyard. You've got to give them the backyard that they recognize, the world that they recognize. And I just felt like uh, those, mainly the Iron Man design. Mm. I felt like who was gonna who was gonna buy that tin can suit uh, in you know 2010 or whenever I did that thing you know uh, especially when we just seen in the movie a way for that big bulky suit to work practically I mean I wasn't suggesting to Brevoort or anybody else to completely copy the movie versions I was just suggesting use those movie versions as a as a design starting point so that you had some sense that this was not just a rehash of a perfectly... I mean, Avengers number 1 from 1963 is a perfectly fine comic. You you can pick that up today and read it and get everything out of it that you want to get out of it. There's nothing wrong with it. So uh, what I didn't want to do was just take that comic and simply stretch it out over five issues and not bring as much... Um, newness to the table as we could possibly get away with, whether it's just the style of storytelling or the style of art or the design of the characters or the uh, worlds that they are operating in. You bring, you do everything you can to connect with the audience that's, that you hope is out there. Um, I mean, that's just, I mean, I totally get where you come from and I, and on a certain level, I do agree with it, but I agree with it less because those all those comics still exist. Sure. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And in fact, in the uh, collection of uh, Avengers The Origin, I think, if I'm not mistaken, they put a reprint of Avengers number one in the back. As though it was like, here, compare and contrast. Well, there's not, I mean, there's not much to compare. Mine is longer and more drawn out and probably you know, uh, a lot longer and more drawn out than it had to be, to be mm-hmm. quite honest. And here's the uh, version done by two masters of the field <laughs> in their prime, doing it in one issue with perfect economy, perfect skill level, you know. I mean, how could how could mine not completely suffer by, by comparison, you know. Well, so I would, have pref- I would have preferred if we looked a little bit even more different so then the, the comparisons wouldn't be quite so painful because man believe me you put anything up to a, a Stanley Jack Kirby comic it's going to be a painful comparison well, you know th- thankfully it's it's actually not in the trade paperback oh good okay so at least your your story gets to uh, live on its own 
Ah, fantastic. Maybe that's just in the hardcover. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of something. Oh, my God. <laughs> Well, Joe, thank you. First of all, I, I, we've gone way over our a lot of time, so I want to thank you for uh, taking a lot of time out of your day to talk about these comics with us. And I do want to have you back at some point to actually talk about your creator-owned stuff because we sure. totally missed out on the fact that you've done a lot of amazing creator-owned work, uh, plus you're work doing some great stuff for Lion Forge right now, and we didn't even talk about it. Well, I'll, I'll come back anytime. I, but I, 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 you know, I get a kick out of talking about this stuff. I'm, I'm wondering now if I've... Uh, if I've un- unburied any skeletons, I'm, pro- I'm sure it's all fine. But um, <laughs> that's the stuff. Sometimes the stuff that sticks with you is the stuff that no one ever hears about. So uh, maybe someone will get a kick out of hearing some of this behind-the-scenes nonsense that goes on when you make these books. That's what I love talking to creators about: is finding out about the nonsense. <laughs> Yeah, well, there's plenty of it, believe me. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, again, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us today, and I do look forward to hopefully having you back on in the new year. Yeah, definitely. Excellent. Thank you so much. Sure.